Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, episode 415. This is the weekly podcast about American flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice. And I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This podcast is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free nationwide online directory to florists, shops, and studios who design with American-grown flowers and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor, Florist Review Magazine. I'm delighted to serve as contributing editor for Slow Flowers Journal, found in the pages of Florist Review. It's the leading trade magazine in the floral industry and the only independent periodical for the retail, wholesale, and supplier market. Take advantage of the special subscription offer for members of the Slow Flowers community at deborahprincing.com, where you can also find the show notes for today's episode 415. Our first sponsor spotlight today goes to Longfield Gardens, which provides home gardeners with high-quality flower bulbs and perennials. Their online store offers plants for every region and every season, from tulips and daffodils to dahlias, caladiums, and amaryllis. Yes, the dahlias are exploding in the Slow Flowers Cutting Garden, but now it's time to start my spring bulb planning. Check out the full catalog at longfield-gardens.com and start planning along with me. I'm excited to know what you'll be planting for your spring garden. Our theme for 2019, 50 States of Slow Flowers, continues today with my conversation with Charles Sherman of North Fork Flower Farm in Orient, New York. Listen for that in the second portion of this episode. It wasn't entirely planned, but as it turns out, we are also stopping in New York by way of South Africa for our first featured guest, Sylvia Lukash of Cape Lily. Sylvia and I first met when I hosted a Slow Flowers meetup in Hudson, New York, about three summers ago. She traveled two hours north of her home and studio in New York City's Harlem neighborhood to join the gathering of Hudson Valley flower farmers, farmer florists, and other designers like herself, a group that loosely called themselves the Hudson Valley Flower Growers Network. We discussed some of the emerging issues facing Manhattan and Brooklyn-based wedding and event florists like Sylvia and the growers whose flowers they so eagerly source. Issues like transportation, special orders, access to markets, and more were discussed. Well, it's a theme that continues today, and you may have listened to my conversation just a few weeks ago with Molly Culver of Molly Oliver Flowers based in Brooklyn. We addressed the same issues and Molly's sourcing goals, successes, and challenges. Sylvia and I continued a friendship when Cape Lily joined Slow Flowers as a member and after we reunited just months later at the first Whidbey Flower Workshop in 2017 hosted by Toby Nelson. There, during our introductions and during the creative writing exercises I led, it emerged that Sylvia dreamed of blending her South African heritage, her love of South Africa floral, and her love of travel into a unique brand for her business, Cape Lily. 
Since then, Sylvia has developed a studio-based floral enterprise serving New York City, Westchester County, where she now lives, and the Hudson Valley Wedding and Event Marketplace. And she has led her first botanical journey for Cape Lily, a floral-themed tour with Susan McCleary to South Africa, which took place last fall. I wanted to invite Sylvia onto the Slow Flowers podcast to share her story and to discuss how she has indeed zeroed in on the unique brand attributes of Cape Lily. If you're at a similar place in your own floral enterprise, seeking a way to highlight your singular story and your distinct place in the market, I know Sylvia's narrative will be inspiring. Sylvia wrote a beautiful essay for our Slow Flowers Journal online magazine called An African Slow Flowers Story, which we published in December of 2017. Its opening lines begin as follows. She writes, I grew up in a small coastal town in South Africa, Plettenberg Bay, in an area called the Garden Route, where Finbos, a distinct aromatic indigenous shrubland, flows down the mountains and hovers on the sand dunes along the ocean. I would run up the hills in my wellies for protection from snakes to harvest some of the pride of the Cape Floral Kingdom, like sugarbush proteas, leucodendrons, and ericas, which my mother, our town's first florist, would use to su- supplement her designs. Fast forward to present day, and I find myself a long way from home, here in the urban hustle of Harlem, New York, but with that same urge to harvest seasonal local flowers. Thanks to the growing network of local cut flower farmers and support from the Slow Flowers community, this is still possible. My go-to supplier is Rocksteady Farm, a woman-owned cooperative farm using holistic and sustainable farming practices, located outside Millerton, New York. I love the creative possibility, yet natural constraints that exist when designing with buckets full of flowers harvested just up the Hudson Valley that same morning. As I embraced the Slow Flowers philosophy in the U.S., I was curious to learn if something similar existed in my home country, given its long floral history and current status as one of the largest protea exporters in the world. Well, you'll have to visit the show notes for today's episode 415 to read the rest of Sylvia's essay. I've included a link for you there. And you'll want to check out photos of Sylvia, her design projects, and last year's South African Botanical Journey, which I'll share in today's show notes at deborahprinzing.com, episode 415. I'll also share links to Sylvia's social places so you can find and follow Cape Lily. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, and I'm so delighted to introduce you to today's guest, Sylvia Lukash of Cape Lily. Hi, Sylvia. Hi, Deborah. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, you bet. It's it's wonderful. Uh, we've had some great conversations in person. This one particular one is via Skype, but I still remember our fun breakfast at the Pike Place Market when you were in Seattle. That was wonderful. Yes, yeah, always so great to see you in person and. Being on this, on this podcast is really special to me because when I was trying to figure out what to do in the world of flowers, this was really the first podcast that I found that gave me a sense of what the industry was like. Um, and then I think we met in person in the Hudson Valley as part of one of your meetups Yep. in 2000, it must be in 2016. So I, I feel like, yeah, you have been on a parallel journey with me somewhere along every step of the way. <laughs> That's right. We met in Hudson in 2016. And then in 2000, um, in April of 2017, you attended the Whidbey Flower Workshop, the first one, and we got to reconnect there, which was really wonderful. 
Exactly. All uh, pivotal moments for uh, Kate Lily. <laughs> well, uh, right before we turned on the recorder, you said, um, I'm all about flowers and travel. And um, I love that, you know, you have kind of narrowed things down because there's so many options to every creative yeah. person. And you could chase all the bright, shiny objects. But to talk about Cape Lily and how that flowers and travel um moniker has come together for you and how that guides what what your business is now give us a snapshot well I think it was a long journey getting to this place where I can be so specific about what Cape Lily does um, but the driving force was always to own my own business and create a life that could incorporate a family and doing things that I was passionate about um, and I have a corporate background, I was trying to find a path to get out of that. <laughs> and the one thing I knew anything about and knew that I loved was flowers. Mm. So I started there. And I think maybe I was a little bit hesitant to begin with because I was raised by a florist and a gardener and sort of told, well, that's really hard work. Like I really, I really wouldn't do that. They'd... find a decent job with a pension <laughs> they're the ones that gives you vacations and no schlepping <laughs> and that'll be much better so yeah. it's quite yeah. ironic that I've ended up here but yeah yeah so I started with flowers but I was always looking for the you know what else what what has not been done in the industry what sort of idea could I bring from I don't know a business and IT background to sort of modernize the floral industry and so I started looking at you know software solutions to help flower farmers bring their product to market and I was all over the show mm. um, and I think at one point I just decided I'm going to do something that I can start right away and that's obviously floral design um, and then the travel part of it was I, w I was still looking for the something else uh -huh. um, and being from South Africa and trying to design this life that I wanted for myself and my family, um, I really had this desire to spend more time there. And I've always been a really passionate South African, even though I've lived out of the country for many years now. Um, I, it's a big part of my identity. And the, the floral kingdom in South Africa is so unique and interesting um, that I thought, you know, if there was a way for me to go back to South Africa on a regular basis and take people with me and show them this diversity and beauty we have that South Africans are so proud of, mm. um, then that would be a great way to do it. Because obviously there are tons of tours to South Africa, you know, doing safari and all the regular highlights, but there didn't seem to be anyone really focusing on the flora and the garden side of things. So it just seemed it was a natural synergy for me personally. Absolutely. And um, there are so many amazing flowers that are indigenous to South Africa and often don't even grow anywhere else on the planet except for in South right. Africa, right? Yeah, it's a hugely diverse floral kingdom um, that is unique to South Africa. I think there's something like almost 9,000 floral species in the Cape Floral Kingdom. Um, with diversity, you know, more intense than in the Amazon jungle. Mm. And you find it all in the space of, you know, in and around Cape Town, one province. So mm -hmm. it really is, yeah, you'll see more things there than you could, could mm. ever imagine. That's mind-blowing. But all of this happened against the backdrop of you um, being a New Yorker when you started design, <laughs> thinking about uh, creating, getting out of tech and, and corporate yes. and, and pursuing a flower-filled life, right? 
Exactly. So I, I was in New York. Um, and so my business identity, I guess, grew out of trying to blend the South African heritage and flowers. And I was living in Harlem at the time. So obviously a strong African influence there. Absolutely. Um, and so it, it felt like a good fit. And I was, I was trying to become the unique sort of Harlem African influence floral designer and bring, you know, a little taste of that what was happening in Brooklyn, really interesting floral scene and different flowers and, you know, the Saipur movement. Mm -hmm. It felt like there wasn't much of that happening in Harlem. So I thought it would be a good space to try and bring some more interesting creative designs to. um, Yeah. To the marketplace. Yeah. Yeah. And where you were in in, uh, Harlem, which is, you know, basically its own little borough, (laughs) it feels like Um, there's a, really dynamic, uh, multicultural and artistic and culinary scene. And uh, the flowers, you were trying to infuse that into the whole uh, character of uh, what was happening with other creatives in the area. I I mean, I think of some of the photos you've shared with me that we used in the Florist Review article with like textiles and Mm -hmm. um, jewelry and obviously people of all, you know, all skin tones. I mean, it was just Mm -hmm. really blended into your brand really yeah I mean I have always loved collaborating with different individuals creatives people and I think naturally I'm someone who brings people together so whether it's doing my own work I'm always looking for interesting partnerships or people to collaborate with and I quite like the role of being um the glue that that (laughs) sort of meshes people together um and not necessarily always like the center of attention or the main feature. I'm like happiest when I'm connecting people and bringing a community together to do something interesting and, and sort of weaving that together. Well, you did. Um, Yeah. And you did that really when, with your first big um, Cape Lily uh, botanical journey. What do you call, I can't remember what you're calling it. Uh, yeah, uh, they are botanical journeys, um, and the first one was to South Africa last year. Um, and yeah, I really wanted the word journey um, in the experience. You know, I'm, I'm not calling them garden tours for mm. a reason because mm-hmm. it's not just that. It is about um, much more than flowers and gardens. It's about you know plant life and nature and the people that are connected to that and. The journey path signifies that I really want people who come along on this experience, whether it be to South Africa or a different destination with us, that, you know, it should be transformative in the Mm -hmm. sense that you're being pulled out of your day to day. It's time for yourself to meet other people with similar interests and really just take time to reflect and be creatively inspired and find new influences and a time to just be quiet and learn from the environment around you and from others. So, um, you know, it's not like I'm forcing that transformation, but I think the feedback from people who traveled with me to South Africa last year, just naturally by being, you know, thousands of miles away from home with fabulous people in sunshine, um, (laughs) you know, their, their lives and their mindsets were changed as a result. And, you know, from the relationships that were formed, uh, I can only imagine it's like if you're coming from North America, most of your um, participants were from North America, right? Yes. At least 
the people who traveled with you. And then your, your eyes all of a sudden are seeing colors and shapes and um, the light even and the, you know, oh, the light, yeah. the land. It's all alien, but but so beautiful that you take a couple of days to just adjust to that, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. I think people don't know what to expect and it feels a lot more daunting than it is. Um, and we'll probably get into this, but, you know, I really felt emboldened to take people on that journey because I met Susan McClary at Toby Nelson's would be mm-hmm. workshop. So, you know, all the flow flowers elements are coming together. <laughs> right. Um, but at the time when we did our introductions in that group, I sort of, I had been pondering this idea and I thought, well, I'll just use this as a test bed. And I said, you know, I'm Sylvia, I have a floral design studio in Harlem and I want to take people to South Africa on a floral expedition. And Sue said to me afterwards, like, that sounds really exciting. I've been wanting to go to South Africa, which turned into, you know, great, will you come with me and, (laughs) you know, be the hook. And she said, yes. And we had a lot of conversations before we went on the journey together Um, and I had said to her, well, we're going to do safari because, you know, and in South Africa, no one says safari. We say we're going to the game reserve or we're Mm. going to the bush, but anyway, Mm. people understand safari here. So I said, you know, safari is important for people who are going to come to South Africa maybe once in their lifetime. It's a huge event and it's completely unique. You can't experience anything like it in the rest of the world. And she said, mm, I, I don't know if I'm that keen on safari. Maybe I would like come for the rest and we'll see. And so we did end up, end up coming for the full experience. And <laughs> af- afterwards she said to me, you know, when you said safari, I didn't know that it was going to be like this. I didn't know that we were just going to be basically in the animal's own environment, which is enormous. You can't imagine, you can't cover all the ground. And to see a lion emerging out of the bush with a porcupine quill sticking out of its chin after, you know, you've been waiting for it to emerge for 45 minutes. And, um, oh my God. Yeah. I thought it was going to be, you know, like sort of a zoo experience, but it wasn't. And oh my I think gosh. That, you know, you just can't imagine things that your mind has never had to like yeah. wrap itself around before. But the reason that that event, from what I have heard from those who've attended and just talking with you and with Sue, the reason that that was a, a successful botanical journey is, first of all, you are 100% fluent in the subject matter, and you even mm-hmm. did kind of a, an earlier trip to work out all the details with the local floral connections yeah. that you made. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that. I, I, the reason I bring this up, yeah. uh, Sylvia, is that... I'm sure listeners are going, well, Deborah, you're all about domestic flowers. Why mm-hmm. are you talking to somebody who's promoting <laughs> South African flowers? And I, yeah. in observing you and your practice, I, be- I really admire the way you're honoring your heritage and trying to elevate the awareness of domestic flowers in your home country in a parallel mm-hmm. way to, to what we're doing here in North America. I mean, is that kind of yeah. how you s- rationalized it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, my goal was to highlight South Africa and the local flora. And so when Sue agreed to come with and give a workshop in South Africa, I wanted to make sure that we were using all 100% either South Africa indigenous uh, flowers or ones that were locally grown. Mm -hmm. And so there there is a small movement in South Africa for local flower farmers um, 
and very much influenced by Florette and her guidance in, in some cases. But that is becoming more popular, and obviously there's lots of sunshine, etc. And we have a very rich agricultural background. But um, And I was sort of guided through meeting all those local flower farmers by the most fabulous um, flower farmer, Louise, from the Wild Bunch flower mm. farm in Wellington outside Cape Town. And she said, no problem, come and visit us and I'll take you around to meet everyone. You can see what flowers are available, etc. And I realized as we went and met all the local farmers that she was actually meeting many of them for the first time and that me asking the question was a catalyst for mm. them meeting one another. And, you know, over the course of the experience and then, you know, us sourcing the flowers and doing the workshop, um, what was fascinating is, the workshop was attended by those of us on the botanical journey, but then also about, you know, 15 South African florists from the Cape Town region and elsewhere in the country. And because we were using all locally grown flowers, I really saw their minds open to the possibility of focusing on celebrating what South Africa has to offer instead of always looking overseas and thinking that what comes from America is better, etc. So... Mm there is huge potential there. And I think people are now, I mean, not because of this workshop, but just, you know, the movement, you know, you're part of it. You're part of it. Yeah. I mean, you, you, I would like to be a part of it. I mean, I think it's really important. Um, and just to appreciate what is, you know, close to you, you don't always need to look further afield. Um, and you know, the Americans that traveled with me were so blown away, blown away by the design talent and the art in South Africa. And I think South Africans are often, um, you know, in some ways we're very proud of what we have. And in other ways we, we have this sort of complex because we're, we're at the bottom of the world and <laughs> trends are set elsewhere and dictated. So I think it was invigorating for mm. the locals. Um, and also the, just the conversations that took place at the workshop um, I think South, the South African florists and farmers often had the impression, you know, it's it's harder for us. In America, everything's easier. Mm. But when florists get together and chat, we have the same challenges, the same growing challenges, distribution challenges, pricing challenges, etc. So. Right. Wow. Well, I... I have seen a few photos from the workshop, but I hope you can share some more because it just seemed like... A, that extra layer of kind of cross-cultural connection and then finding common the common narrative for people yeah. from two different continents was just, it must have been really moving. And yeah. made, sounds like it's made you want to do continue this idea of the botanical journeys. Yeah, I mean, I think I came back from that trip feeling, you know, it was a big undertaking. I don't think I realized at the time sort of what I had stuck my neck out <laughs> to do. Right. Um, but I do like to take on big challenges and just forge ahead and see what happens. And kind of as the experience unfolded, I just, it was a beautiful moment for me to see a vision that was sort of unclear in my mind to begin with, um, turn into something much more beautiful and better than I could have expected because of all the generous people who got on board in South Africa and helped me along the way. And, um, just the open spirit of the people who traveled with me, you know, and there were florists, gardeners, farmers, just, you know, photographer, beautiful mm-hmm. photographer. Um, and 
yeah, it's really the people who make those things possible. So I came back feeling like it was, I don't know if you've had those experiences where I've seen people being asked like, what's your proudest, you know, life achievement so far? And I always used to think, oh crap, you know, I haven't, I couldn't answer that question. <laughs> now you can. Um, I was like, oh, I don't, I don't have a baby. So I can't even say like my children, <laughs> but now, well, now I do actually have a baby, but uh, last year, I thought this is great because this really feels like my proudest moment, my biggest life achievement, not necessarily from a, even a work perspective, but just something that I've done that feels really meaningful. So right. I'm very motivated to continue the trips to South Africa, but also expand the portfolio and include um, next year I'm doing Chelsea Flower Show in England in May um, and then potentially to do Japan the following year again with, with Sue. So oh my gosh, how exciting. Have, yeah, to have a portfolio of botanical journeys that people can pick from um, and, you know, plan for in advance and to keep adding to that. So that's the travel side of the business. Um, and that's sort of like my big idea beyond flowers. Well, you know, I, I let's just pause and celebrate that right now, because one of the things that I'm always harping on people about and you might remember that when we did the little writing uh exercises at the Whidbey flower workshop is like know your story and you know figure out what is unique to you that no one else has because that's the only thing that is priceless that no one can take away from you and people do this to varying degrees but gosh talk about honing in on your brand sylvia you've really been able to um understand it, articulate it, and see how it's a way to connect people. Um, as, and I'm sure it's connecting with your wedding and event clients as well. But the touring part is something that that you don't have much competition for, It's that, which is great, right? Like you can own that space. Yeah, I, I hope so. And I mean, it's, it's not from having tried and failed at various other things along the way. You know, I, I was dabbling in a lot of things. I didn't start in this place. <laughs> right. I feel good about where I've ended up now. Yeah. yeah. And you have a trip coming up this fall that we should, should just touch on so people mm -hmm. can listen. If they're listening and they're curious, I think it's not too late to, to reach out. Yeah. So the, the next trip we're doing is to South Africa again, very, very similar format to previously. Um, so with two nights of, safari and then um, six nights in Cape Town and the surrounding farmlands and, and wine region. And that is from October 28th to November 5th. Um, and then there is an optional floral design workshop, uh, this time with a local South African designer called um, Heike Hayward from okay. Fleur, Fleur Le Cordeur. Um, and she, to my mind, it has really pushed the boundaries um, in Cape Town in South Africa with opulent, luscious, wild, crazy colors and florals and an amazing person to learn with um, who is based in Cape Town. Oh, great. Well, we'll get all those details and share them on the show notes, including some photos, because um, it's it just sounds perfect. And that time of year is really when the, the gardens are at their peak, right? Yeah, I mean, the beauty about South Africa is there's always something amazing to see um, in the gardens, no matter what time of year it is. Um, and this will be sort of the end of spring going into early summer. So definitely a lot of bounty mm. available. A lot um, of, uh, wait, I cut you off. A lot of what? 
Bounty. Yeah, bounty. Okay. Floral bounty. Yeah. <laughs> um, and not not too not too boiling hot. So Got it. no fainting under that. <laughs> That's wonderful. So that's one big chapter in your life. And I want to talk a little bit about your floral design work as well, because um, you've had, you've had to, again, pick up and try on various models to figure out what, what works for Sylvia Lukash and for Cape Lily, especially as your life has changed in the last couple of years. Yeah, that's definitely changed a lot. And I feel like it's continuing to evolve. So I mean, to dial it right back when I started in 2016, I I still had a full-time job and was keeping my floral um, habit uh, (laughs) a a secret at work. So I was really like operating undercover. Um, And I was, I was trying to do things that I I could do while I still had a full-time job. Um, But I started out, um, I guess the background is I was a really active member and founder of a community garden in the Lower East Side in New York when I lived there. And from that, I think that's what got me into sort of the farming movement and locally grown and the community being so important. So when I knew I wanted to start with flowers, um, I was actually asked by a colleague to do their wedding and I was looking for a farm to source everything from. Um, and that ended up being shoving leopard, um, back in, I think it was 2014. Um, And that sort of opened my eyes to the locally grown movement. So in 2016, when I started again, I I started by contacting local flower farms. And so I I really went about things backwards. Um, And instead of starting with a demand for flowers, I started (laughs) with flowers and then tried to to sell them. But there was a, a farmer's market in Harlem. And I thought, well, I'll just start by selling like local bunches of flowers because there aren't any here. They're all further upstate. So I'll try and source them and then pass them on. Um, And I wrote to all these farmers and I heard back from Rocksteady, um, Angela, who was there at the time. And she started supplying me with flowers every every week. And I would take them to the farmer's market and they would die in the sun. And I'd come back to my one-bedroom apartment and just watch all these flowers wilt and it was very sad. Um, so I was trying to peddle those flowers in Harlem to different restaurants and businesses and and through that um, I got one wedding client and a, you know, a restaurant and an event space and, and that's how I started to do more weddings and I just quickly learned sort of what works and what doesn't. Um, and that's how weddings and events ended up being the mainstay. Um, but I think, so I've only had two full seasons, I guess, since I started the business of weddings. Um, and in the beginning, you're not too picky, you know, work is right. work. Um, but this year, I just had a baby. She's six months old now. Mm. Um, and I just have really limited time, you know, and between flowers and the travel business, I think it's been really helpful for me to just hone in on what I want to do. Um, And I think events have actually been more of an income generator for the flower business than weddings to date. And I think it's just from working with certain event planners that a lot more referral business in that space and New York corporate events, it just sometimes is easier to get budget sign off and there's less back and forth and it can just be simpler yeah. To get the work done. So um, what kind of corporate, uh, like like parties and openings and um, 
conferences, that sort of thing? Um, I guess more small scale. So breakfasts, brunches, sort of um, social gatherings, okay. galas, um, yeah, corporate openings, and then sometimes more interesting sort of installations for them depending on who the client is or the That's, budget. And plus it's sort of interesting in a way that you have this familiarity and comfort level in the corporate environment that maybe just makes it mm-hmm. <clears throat> makes it more natural for them to talk with you and, and for you to understand what their needs are. Not, I don't know, it yeah. seems like it could lend itself to that with your background. I think, yeah, potentially, yeah, I think I understand the challenges of getting budget sign-off and how that works and, you know, I'm sensitive to that. And I just try and turn things around really quickly for people and be really professional about it. So I think, you know, repeat business is really important. And so typically once I've worked with a client and they've been satisfied, I do get repeat business from them just because, you know, they know what the experience is going to be. Right, right. Um. But I'm just, I've become a lot less compromising on price. Not that I ever compromised, but, you know, as as you do this work, you realize sometimes that your costs were higher than you expected. So I have been slowly inching up the the price. Um, And then similarly with with weddings, um, I just feel like, or someone said to me this year, this year is a year of engagements and next year is going to be a year of weddings, but it feels like New York, the wedding season has been slower than last year. Ah. Um, but you know, I haven't been in this business for many years, so I don't have much to compare it to, but I just feel like I had a ton of proposals this year and spent a lot of time, you know, even if you have a template and a, a good process, um, putting together personalized proposals takes a lot of time. And I was just having all these back and forths with clients trying to negotiate and asking for discounts. And, you know, if we pay you cash, can you take off the tax fee and lots of sort of conversations like that. Um, And I think I just got sick of it because, you know, I have a baby screaming in the background. (laughs) And ultimately I was just seeing like these, I'm not going to win this business because if it's not a great experience for me, it's probably not for them either. Mm -hmm. Um, So where I'm at in the wedding space now is I really want to be selective about the kind of work I do. Um, I only want to do more artful, interesting, creative projects, whether that be a wedding or an event. And I think the way to get rid of work that you don't want is to outprice people and so just to be clear up front with people, you know, these are the ballpark costs. And um, I'm trying to create a brand that's, I don't want to say aspirational, but I want people to be really drawn to the images so that they're convinced this is the person right. they want to work with. Right. And um, and understand that it one, if, if you're showing them art, then the assumption is that that is going to have you know, a value to it and a certain price tag. I'm not trying to be the most expensive florist out there. I just, I want to somehow be a better fit for the kind of work that I'm trying to do. And I think that, yeah, we're so saturated. You know, everyone's a wedding florist and starting a wedding business and we're all just churning out the same thing for the sort of like mid-range budget that brides are negotiating on because weddings are hugely expensive and I get that and yeah um well let's talk let's talk about I mean I let's drill down on that a little bit I 
you're you're just not a person. You just don't brag. <laughs> you just don't talk about how awesome you are. So you're being you're being humble. But <laughs> I I I'm curious on you know one of the things that is different about you is your aesthetic, and so admittedly, not everybody is going to have the confidence to go with a more um, dramatic palette or a more, uh, yeah, you know, intricate, you know, diversified uh, selection of botanicals. And you, you're, how would you describe your aesthetic? I'm, I'm kind of throwing out um, what I think about it, which yeah. is somewhat of a, of a South African vibe, but it's more modern, I think, than maybe some people might you know, mm-hmm. might associate with, um, you know, the Cape of Africa. Yeah, I think, um, I guess the words that could be linked to Africa or in my designs are, I like the natural and wild look, mm-hmm. but not crazy. I, I also like the word elegant mm-hmm. um, and I think just well-designed, mm-hmm. not a mess. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the flowers to have their own space. Um, I like more minimalist color palettes so that things really stand out, but overall, um, I'm not too sure about this word artful, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I I do want there to be more of an artistic feel to the design. Um, and then the word I do like is edgy. Mm -hmm. I want to create things that are slightly off and different in some way. I don't want to create something that's, I mean, everything to some extent has been done before, Sure. but I wanted to have a twist or a difference. And I'm trying to create flowers that get people talking. Yeah. Um, and, and are you able to source, uh, still stick to your goals of, of sourcing domestic flowers to, to get that look? Because obviously there are California farms that grow some South African plants, but it's not like it's easy yeah. to come by, right? No, and I'm not necessarily using um, a lot of South African plants. I think um, they're just ways to play with texture that give you that feeling or other dried elements, whatever it is. Um, So now that I've moved outside of New York to, um, I guess, Westchester, but sort of the lower Hudson Valley, there is more space for me to go and, you know, forage and find interesting pieces. But obviously that's time consuming. So... Um, I'm still trying to buy as much as possible from local farms, but I'm finding where I am now distribution is actually ironically harder than when I lived in Harlem because I'm not on the main delivery route. You know, they're, they're trying to get to Brooklyn. Uh-huh. Um, so you're physically so having, are you physically having to go pick up product then? I physically can't because I mean, those farms are like a, even where I am, they're like a two to three hour drive. Mm. So that's, you know, yeah. I can't, I can't spend four hours in the car getting, you know, um, a selection of what I need because I ultimately can't get everything from there. Right. So it's um, multi, it would be multiple trips per week just to fulfill one wedding. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, we're starting hopefully to have more conversations about can we create a delivery hub in this area because I'm not the only florist obviously. And that's the role I'm willing to take on, um, you know, more responsibility for and play a part in helping make that happen um, to get locally grown produce to this Westchester uh, area. 
So um, interesting. We but, don't, I, yeah, in the meantime, I'm going to the, the, you know, to the 28th Street predominantly and then looking for the local bits that I can find or it's become a lot more American grown this year than locally grown. Yeah. And not even that is a, a full day of uh, commitment for you, probably, because you're uh, 45 minutes outside of the city now, probably. I'm just yeah. guessing. Yeah. Yeah, it is 45 minutes. That's not bad. I mean, it's, you know, it probably takes you 45 minutes from Brooklyn to get to. Yeah. <laughs> To get to 28th Street anyway, so it's got to be done. Well, so interesting because um, I had Molly Culver from Molly Oliver Flowers in Brooklyn on the podcast just recently, and we had very similar conversation yeah. about, you know, who who has the infrastructure to deliver. Mm-hmm. But Brooklyn does, yeah. Brooklyn does have a more of a uh, demand base of florists, wedding and event florists, probably than where you are. So it's, I see the yeah. point, like you've, yeah. you've got to be, clever about how you source your product uh it's not obvious yeah exactly but i think there probably is enough of a demand it just requires someone to go knocking on those doors and solidify you know who where the demand's coming from and where the hub can be so yeah Yeah. well ongoing uh, an ongoing conversation that i would love to support you in and and you are an instigator and a a magnet that brings people together and like you said you don't it doesn't it doesn't have to be your thing but you'll you'll be well you're happy to kick it off and so yeah no I love doing that kind of thing I mean I would be happy to sit um I don't know in a studio or in a hallway once a week and you know make sure the flowers get to the people who need them but um, But it it would be nice if someone stepped up and offered to join your team (laughs) so we're throwing it out there to the to the soul flowers community and you know that get in touch with Sylvia if (laughs) <laughs> yes. If you're uh, an underground florist in Westchester, and I can think of a few yeah. of them right now who should be yeah. calling you. <laughs> we need to speak. Well, so uh, you have uh, you have this beautiful baby, Lila, who's six months old, <laughs> and you've moved out of the city, but you're still kind of portrayed as a Harlem-based business uh, for marketing purposes, right? I mean, I, that's something I'm trying to transition out of. I think I, I left it out there. And, you know, on my website for a while and probably still on Google, I get a lot of phone calls. And mm. and I think that was probably linked to what um, a minor identity crisis, I yeah. think, in terms of leaving the city and not knowing what that was going to mean for my business and for me as, you know, as a person. Um, you don't really leave South Africa to move to the big city and then end up in the burbs kind of thing. <laughs> So I would have this <laughs> panic about people are going to ask me, like, where, where do you live? And I'll have to say Irvington. And then they'll say, oh, I don't know where that is. And then <laughs> you know, I'll be embarrassed. And anyway, I'm over that now. Good. So, um, yeah, so I think Harlem is definitely a, a you know, a previous chapter. Mm-hmm. And I'm starting to make some nice connections in Westchester and in the Hudson Valley Um you know, really creative designers and planners and beautiful venues up here. So my work hopefully will be shifting a little bit further north. Yep. Um, but Smart. still, you know, in the city and then like an hour north or, or ideally in an hour radius from my house. That's the, that's the plan. Well, even though you have all of this on your plate, you recently did a uh, really fun, um, I guess, large scale installation, kind of like a gorilla installation uh, as yeah. part as part of this leaf flower festival and can you just talk a little bit about it this was in june right 
yeah, I think early or well, mid June. Um, and <laughs> I joke about this, but I got a call out of the blue and I get, um, I get a fair amount of spam calls with the business phone and, I don't know, I was in the middle of something and this man called JD called me and said, hi, um, I was starting a flower. No, he didn't even say that. He just said, hi, can I have two minutes of your, or like five minutes, 10 minutes of your time? And I said, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you two. What is this about? Um, and then actually, as I listened more, um, I realized it was a real and a, a great opportunity uh, that they are trying to essentially create the equivalent of a Chelsea flower show or something to that scale, a celebration of plants and flowers in New York um, starting next year. But they were trying to do a, sort of a pre-launch um, and lots of pop-up flower installs all over the city. So when I realized that was the case, um, I said, yes, it was quite last minute, but we got a beautiful uh, venue in Washington Heights, uh, a fountain, um, created by Esther Partegas, um, and the name of the, the fountain is The Source, and it was about 11 foot high, um, sort of a rectangular structure with really bright, fun tribal prints, um, and a lot of uh, Dominicans in that neighborhood. So they were trying to do something that was sort of a nod to the neighborhood and the community, um, yeah, just a, a challenging space for me because I don't usually do a lot with tropicals or even, the, yeah, the fountain had a lot of reds and greens. I don't really work with red for sure. some reason. Maybe yeah. that's going to change. But so it was, I just felt like it was a creative stretch. Um, but I have a great team of freelancers. And then as of last year, um, a studio manager called Margaret Cuff um, who is a florist in New York and also has a, um, an interior plant design business. So she has come on as studio manager and we just work beautifully together and we sort of sat down and figured out a plan. Um, and then it was a bit of a gorilla install at 3am, um, on a very rainy Tuesday morning, oh getting my goodness. that design up on top of the fountain. So <clears throat> we ended up using, um, Thank God for the pigeon spikes that were on top of the fountain. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah, I know what you're talking about. Chicken yeah, chicken wire to those, um, and that sort of anchored the whole design down. But we didn't really know until we got up there what we were dealing with. So we just took a whole bag of tricks and a ton of chicken wire and zip ties and command hooks and tape. But yeah, nothing then, was sticking in the rain. So and then this was part of a number of these gorilla installations around New York. Uh, in this during this short period of time called that they were kind of also calling New York Flower Week or something like yes. that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Leaf Flower Show um, was putting on um, New York Flower Week installs all over the city, and Lewis Miller is really the designer who stepped up to say, "I'm going to be a part of this, and we should make this happen." So he did a number of flower flashes, as he calls them, um, throughout the city, um, and another. Uh, great designer, East Olivia, she and her team were involved, um, and Bee Flower Studios. So there were there were a few different designers involved um, in stores and different iconic New York landmarks. Ah, I love uh, that you were part of that. I, yeah, I, it, was, it was really, um, it was really great. Wow. Well, more to come on that front, but um, you were uh, 
you just had a, a newborn basically and you were juggling all this, you know, out in the middle of the night doing an install. It must have just felt like, okay, I've arrived. Yeah, <laughs> it was a bit much. I think I had to wake her up at 3 a.m. to breastfeed her or something and then, I don't know, get there by four, you know. <laughs> but yeah, you always forget. You're like, oh, geez, I need to feed the baby. The things women do, I tell you. Um, well, thanks for sharing that. And maybe you could share a photo or two of the installation you did on that yeah, fountain. Yeah, absolutely. I, I saw mm -hmm. them in the images in your Instagram feed, and they, it was really stunning. And, um, yeah. you know, maybe that's part of being an artist is, like, those constraints. Oh, yeah, that's the best to me. Inspire I just, you, yeah. I love it. Yeah, I need constraints, um, which I think is also why buying local flowers is so great because, it's sort of like going to the flower market, you know, and what's, see what's available. If you're going to one farm, like what are you going to do with what that farm is growing? And I think that's a great natural constraint to incorporate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, you can make both work, but it's interesting <laughs> to pick a moment in time and just design with what's growing at that point at one farm. Um, doesn't work for every wedding, but I'm sure you can pull it off. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'd like to. Uh, well, Sylvia, I'm so excited for your, your, botanical journeys. I, I think that uh, our world is in such uh, chaos that the more we can mm. actually travel and meet uh, human beings interested in the same thing we're interested in, yeah. in other parts of the world, it's, it's only going to enrich us. And, and you're providing this wonderful forum for that to happen. And uh, I'm just really impressed with what you have achieved. And uh, I hope oh. I can come with you one of these days. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. We need to get you to South Africa. And yeah, just thanks for being such a great influence on the industry. And yeah, just a personal mentor for me. Mm. Um, as you've been on my journey, it's been really special. Mm. Well, that's our little love fest. Is there anything else we, I didn't ask you that we want to make sure you share with folks uh, who are listening today, which again, Everything mm -hmm. we talked about, we're going to have photos of at the show notes at DebraPrinzing.com. So you can find Sylvia, follow her goodness, and um, check out what she's up to. Maybe you can join her. Yeah, I think we talked about, you know, all the projects that I have upcoming. So South Africa in the fall, and then we're doing RHS Chelsea and London, England uh, Botanical Journey in May next year. Uh, um, awesome. Yeah, but I think just in terms of, you know, growing a business and the thing that has probably been the most important to me in the last year is being able to rely on other people um, and, you know, to any florist out there who doesn't have like a business partner or a studio manager, that has been a life changer for me and um, I think there's just there's no other way to do it um, than to cede control to someone else and be a team to get things done. I have learned um, I have learned that lesson myself personally, and I'm really glad you brought it up because it is hard to let go, but it allows you to do more creative work when you do that. So, and it's financially risky, but it's still uh, it, for me. I've had that same experience, Sylvia, where I'm just so grateful that I finally made that leap so thanks for mentioning yeah, that of course well thanks my dear i will talk Thank with you, you soon and i'm so excited that we could do this podcast and i appreciate you saying yes when i asked yeah thanks so much for having me
Thank you so much for joining me today. As Sylvia mentioned, the next botanical journey to South Africa is scheduled for this coming October. So check out the link to see the itinerary and learn how you can be part of the trip. I've added more details in today's show notes for you to see. Our next sponsor spotlight this week is the Association of Specialty Cutflower Growers. Formed in 1988, ASCFG was created to educate, unite, and support commercial cutflower growers. Its mission is to help growers produce high-quality floral material and to foster and promote the local availability of that product. Learn more at ASCFG.org. Well, we've been to the suburbs of New York City, where Sylvia is based. Now, let's travel to the farthest point of Long Island's North Fork, to the town of Orient, where we'll continue the 50 States of Slow Flowers series and meet Charles Sherman of North Fork Flower Farm. Charles Sherman is one quarter of North Fork Flower Farm, the two-acre farm he started four years ago with his life partner, Karen Braziller, along with Kevin Perry and his wife, Drianne Benner. As you will hear in our conversation, Charles Sherman and I have a dear mutual friend in fellow Orient resident, Charles Dean, who I've known for more than 15 years through the Garden Writers Association, and who has produced a number of books with editor Karen Braziller, Charles Sherman's partner. So this is a fond conversation for me, and it makes me yearn to return to Orient, New York, because I haven't visited there since 2011. Check out photos of the people behind North Fork Flower Farm and their beautiful flowers in today's show notes at deborahprinzing.com. Let's get started. Hey, today I'm so excited to be visiting New York virtually, uh, and uh, this is part of our 50 States of Slow Flowers series, and I'm so excited to introduce Charles Sherman of North Fork Flower Farm in Orient, New York. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Charles. Hi, Deborah. It's nice to speak to you and nice to be part of your podcast. Absolutely. Now, we um, have never met in person, but we have a very common, a couple common dear friends uh, yeah, because I've visited Orient and North Fork many times, and um, I just feel like I know you because of uh Karen and the other Charles, and uh, we'll we'll have yes. to let people guess what that's all about. <laughs> <laughs> there are two Charleses who are avid gardeners in Orient. He's known as Charles One, and I'm Charles Two. Okay, well, a shout out to Charles Dean and his amazing garden, and I'm happy to meet Charles Sherman. Um, how did how, tell us about North Fork Flower Farm? How, first of all, give me a snapshot of what it is, where you're located, and kind of the size and scale. Okay. Um, we are a flower farm, um, on the eastern tip of the North Fork of Long Island. Um, we, our farm is situated on two acres and we have, um, over 200 different flowers that we grow. Wow. Um, our market is, um, on several levels. We have a active CSA um, portion whereby we make arrangements and deliver them to over 40 um, subscribers mm. each each uh, weekend and they're located within about a 20 mile radius of Orient. In addition to that, we sell our flowers at two Farmers markets, one in Greenport, New York, which is the next town over, 
and one in Rockville Center, New York, which is about um, 80 or 90 miles away. Um, we also um, do weddings and, and other events. Um, we um, provide flowers for dinner parties and a whole host of other social occasions where flowers are, um, are needed by our, by our customers. And uh, you are doing this with uh, some other folks, right? Give us a snapshot of the team. Yes. Um, my partner, um, Karen Braziller, is uh, one of the four partners. And another couple, um, Kevin, <clears throat> excuse me, Kevin Perry and his wife, Drianne Benner, uh, are partners. The partnership came about um, shortly after I moved to Orient about five years ago. I was attending a, a civic meeting in Kevin and Drianne's uh, um, home, and I was meeting Kevin for the first time, and he asked casually um, what kind of work I did. And I explained that I was a, um, a retired attorney in my past life, but what I, my passion and what I really wanted to do in the next phase of my life was to start a flower farm, at which point Kevin's mouth fell open <laughs> and he said, oh my goodness, you've got to meet my wife, Drianne. That is her lifetime dream as well. Wow. So a couple of hours later, we sat down and decided that we were going to do this together. Wow. And um, the first summer, we had a, a tiny little parcel that was literally one-twentieth of an acre that a friend who has a tree farm in Orient gave us to use just for one summer to see if we really liked doing um, what we proposed to do, which was to grow flowers and sell them uh, as cut flowers to a variety of customers, sure. wholesale and retail. And we loved it. And and one of our customers that year um, was a, a woman who has whose family has farmed on Long Island in, in Orient for 350 years. And we happened to do the flowers for her, one of her son's weddings. And she loved the flowers. And she said to us, I have some land to rent. I hear you are looking for uh, a place to relocate your farm. Why don't you come look at my land? I would love to have you. We did. We fell in love with the, with the property. And we've been there. This is our third year there wow. um, on her property. Wow. I mean, that's the, sort of the secret sauce for so many flower farmers is having <clears throat> stability where they're, if they don't own their land, stability at least with a lease. And this sounds like a, sort of a, a person who's invested emotionally in what you're doing as well as, you know, wanting to rent out her land. She is very much invested. She loves to come out and walk in the fields, and she loves looking out her window and seeing two acres of flowers. Mm. What's your uh, growing season, Charles? Because I've I've been to Orient in January before. It's covered in snow, and it's very wintry, and you kind of have all four seasons at the end of, at the tip of Long Island, right? Yes, we certainly have all four seasons. Um, w w despite that, we 
really operate uh, 365 days a year. Wow. Um, a lot of the time, um, however, is of that is not with act- actively growing plants, but we have our noses and seed catalogs mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. We actually start um, uh, many of our seeds, the perennials, in in November and December. They're started primarily um, from seeds, which I sow under grow lights mm-hmm. in, in, our, in the basement of my home here. And then we transfer them in about February or March to our unheated um, hoop houses or greenhouses. Mm-hmm. They're, they're covered in plastic. And we have two of them on the farm. And we use those to 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 start some seeds and to really um, grow on the ones that require longer term to yeah. get up to speed before we can plant them out in in the garden and there we start planting out in in March and April and um, most of them can go out our frost date is in uh, around the 20th of April we start really actively planting out the annuals starting then between then and the beginning of May almost all of the annuals go out uh, as well as any perennials that was that weren't planted before that's true you know you are i i have to stop and remember how close you are to the the shoreline it's a it's a merit the maritime influence allows you to plant maybe earlier than one would expect I, I, april 20th is a pretty early last frost date <clears throat> it is and we are uniquely satisfied uh, excuse me uniquely situated um we are almost equidistant between Long Island Sound on the north end and on the southern end is the Great Peconic Bay. Mm-hmm. So we have two major water mm-hmm. um, sources and Peconic Bay flows right into into the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. So we have two major bodies of water that really uh, keep our temperature fairly moderate, but we get very cold yeah. in January yeah. and February. And you mentioned the high tunnels. Um, they're not heated, but they do provide protection, especially from uh, probably like snow or whatever. But um, what, what? As well as wind, oh, yes. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, but everything then ultimately goes out to the field uh, at North Fork Flower Farm. Uh, exactly. Okay. And one of my partners, Kevin, um, is... Actually, he still practices um, architecture, mm. and he's a, a very inventive um, person, and he has rigged up this um, system in our smaller greenhouse that has um, a series of um, big, I think they're 75-gallon barrels that are painted white, and they're linked together with a, a rotating water supply. So it actually... it Although we're not heated as such, those black barrels absorb a lot of heat mm, from mm-hmm. the sun in the greenhouse. And and when it cools down, they radiate the heat back. Wow. It's sort of like a large radiator that are underneath the tables that the that the seedlings are growing out on. 
God, that's brilliant. It's like old-fashioned passive solar heating. Um, exactly. Working for you. Wow, exactly. that's so neat. And we use the larger house to grow out a lot of particularly early spring bulbs that are too mm. uh, tender for us to plant in the ground here, like ranunculus and anemones. Mm -hmm. uh, we tried our first year, and even though we covered them in remay, um, it, it was not really satisfactory, but under our, under the big hoop house, we grow them in, in, in plastic crates, mm. are very successful mm -hmm. at, at, at getting them in, to be just beautiful. Oh, I bet people are just so excited to see local flowers that early in the season. Uh, I mean, I guess it's my understanding, Charles, that they're, they're, you're a part of Long Island has always had an agricultural history, right? Uh, it, as far as... We you know. have. We have. And um, probably 50 years or more ago, Long Island had a very big cut flower industry. Mm. It, was, it was out in the fields as well as under greenhouses. But as oil prices surged mm -hmm. and and labor costs surged, these, industry, these farms that used to supply the big uh, wholesale markets on 28th Street mm -hmm. in Manhattan suddenly could no longer compete successfully, and that's when the major um, floral wholesalers, both in New York as well as all over the country, is you all too well know, mm -hmm. started sourcing the flowers from South America and from Europe because it became economically feasible to air freight these um, these flowers that were grown on huge um, agribusinesses from other continents right. In, right. into the uh, used in floral shops in the United States. So now you're kind and, of... Part of this, you're re, you know, reclaiming this renaissance or cl reclaiming this heritage and having a, a bit of a local flower renaissance. Um, we, you were just quoted in a, a great article that ran in uh, Newsday, which is the daily newspaper on Long Island, that uh, a writer named Jim Merritt did a story about North Fork Flower Farm. And I'll be sure to share a link to that uh, in our show notes today because it's it's really fun to it's fun to see the local press get excited about flowers being grown in their own backyard and. Um, what are your observations? Do you find that you're kind of at the front end leading and that now florists are catching up to you? Uh, or what's going on in that front? Um, we are. I guess long, long, the farm stands on Long Island have for a long time grown um, and had bunches of flowers mm. among, the, among the vegetables and mm -hmm. fruits that they, that they sell. And I don't mean this in a snobbish manner, but they're mostly kind of ordinary flowers. Yeah. Um, you had um, a lot of zinnias and and flowers like that, the common sort of household garden variety of flowers. And um, I did a lot of reading your books as well as some history of of. Um, agriculture in Long Island. And I really got inspired to want to 
as you say, reclaim or, mm-hmm. or recreate um, mm-hmm. a floral market of locally grown flowers here on Long Island as it had been 50 or 75 years ago. And, and to really expand that market to grow flowers that you just don't see in, in commerce um, because they come from these big farms in South America, mm-hmm. and et cetera. So we started growing not only native flowers, flowers that are native to Long Island, but lots of really interesting flowers. I, I did a lot of reading and, and sourcing in, in seed catalogs, and they're wonderful seed companies all over this country that that produce seeds for these fabulous flowers that people in our community have never seen before. Wow. And and they love people love to come to the farm and and walk around and ask, you know, what's that flower? What's that flower? I've never seen that before. And and I sort of have a penchant for weird looking flowers. <laughs> all the better. That's great. <laughs> I know. We have this verbascum that's, uh, I think it's verbascum multiflorum or something mm. like that. And it's, it looks, frankly, like something from out of space. It just has these arms of yellow flowers that are just reaching out all over the place. And people love to come and stand in the middle. This plant is like 10 feet high. Oh, my gosh. And they love to stand in the middle with these arms of yellow flowers encircling them and and take selfies and is it hard be to, photographed by the friends. Is it hard <laughs> to bring yourself to cut them then, <laughs> or are you okay with that? <laughs> no, it, it, uh, it's such a gigantic flower that it's really hard to cut them and put them in arrangements. They, they have to go in these humongous arrangements, and uh, it, it, we don't have great demand for yeah. those size arrangements. That's not your profit but, center then. I just, that's sort of like the, <laughs> just, just the aha factor. <laughs> Exactly. Definitely not a profit center. It's oh my just something we, we love to grow and, and have just people walk out and it just towers over every other plant. Mm-hmm. So it's the first thing that people see when they walk in the, walk into the farm. I'm having a, a, a wonderful memories in my mind's eye of a time that I visited Orient and came to visit your partner, Karen Brasiller. How does she say it? Brasiller? Brazilla. Yeah. Sorry, I always mispronounce it. This is before you two were, were together, but I remember Karen had this incredible stand of um, beautiful trumpet lilies in, in her backyard that were taller than her. And we have I have some pictures that uh, Charles and Skip gave me of her in that beautiful stand. And what a wonderful story that you two have come together through a love of many things. I'm sure love of each other, but also a love of flowers. That's that's tell me a little bit about your path. How did you leave a practice of law and become a gentleman farmer? I think that's really exciting. Well, I have, uh, you know, all of my life I've really loved um, growing flowers, um, and I've I've been fortunate enough to have big gardens wherever I've lived on Long Island, mm. and um, I, I decided to retire from law. I, I was a divorce lawyer, so mm-hmm. you can well Stress. imagine the very, the very <laughs> antithesis of uh, being a flower farmer. Uh, and, Enough said. Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. And I, I wanted to, I, my original intention had been to relocate to California where my two sons live and to start a flower farm there. Mm-hmm. And this was in uh, 2014 and 15 when 
California was having this awful um, drought. Right. And I, I was told by friends there, it, you just if you come, you're not going to be able to get water. Um, so you should um, look at exploring some other possibilities. And at that time, um, I I met Karen and. Interestingly, one of our one of our first dates, I I uh, told Karen that of my dreams to start a flower farm, mm. and that I was a a big fan of this woman who started a movement in flowers called the Slow Flower Movement. And oh my her name God, Deborah Prenzing, <laughs> and and Karen's mouth dropped open and said. I know Deborah Prenzing. I met her a couple of years ago. I have her books, and she's wonderful. Oh, and God. So I didn't this, know you were going to tell me that story. I love that. Yes, so you were really very responsible mm. in so many ways um, for our being together and, and me being a flower farmer. Wow. Well, Karen is an, a, a world-class editor and book developer and writer, and I, I'm i thinking maybe she needs to start a floral literary journal or something to kind of meld these two worlds. So tell her I'm thinking about that. <laughs> I know. Tell her. I, well, I can tell you that I've tried uh, not successfully to interest her in um, doing uh, book publishing of uh, regarding uh, farming and agriculture, and yeah, yeah, she, she says that 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 there's so many wonderful publishers who <laughs> who, who do that that she's going to stick with uh, the literary market, which okay. she knows best. Okay, but at least I know people listening to this are going to want to get your plant list. So um, I don't know, maybe you can share a few of your favorites. Uh, Either I don't know. Do you keep an availability list um, for your clients that we could share with listeners? Well, that's one of <laughs> one of our dreams to one day have that because people call us up daily and ask what's in bloom, and the yeah. list is very long. No pressure. That can be your winter project. Yes, but we grow so many different flowers. Even the common flowers that I was sort of poo-pooing before, like zinnias. We've got probably ten or. 12 different zinnias, but but as well as the Benari giants, which mm-hmm. we love and our mm-hmm. and our clients and customers love, we also grow some of these, you know, the beautiful, fairly newly developed, um, I call them the two-tone ones, like mm-hmm. the rose lime and the mm-hmm. lime rose mm-hmm. and the orange lime and those. And we have lots of cosmos. We, we kind of stay away from the um, from the single cosmos, we love the the really double ones and and the ones that are just very unusual, the bicolors and things like that. But we also grow. Um, we love um, amaranthus. We, mm. we amaranth. We grow the the, the ones that uh, are upstanding, that's that are tall, as well as the ones that droop. Um, we have. Um, um, we we love the um, black-eyed Susans. We love different kinds of rutabecchia. Uh, we love the various... Um, there are a lot of different artemisias that we grow, f- that we use in, in for, for florid, for, for as foliage. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that. W- we love to combine um, fresh herbs 
many culinary herbs and other herbs, as well as ornamental grasses um, in our arrangements. So they're not just the standard flowers and the kind of fillers that you find in the floral industry. Will might like like Artemisia absinthum that you that's used to make the the liquor absinthe. It's right. a be- beautiful plant, and its foliage is is I think one of my favorites to my use in, in in arrangements. And um, we love all the different Queen Anne's laces, the Dara Carrata, and all the different colors of that. And um, gee, we're we're growing Lysianthus this year, which we grew from plugs because we have not. You have to. (laughs) Yeah, everybody does. (laughs) We we haven't been successful in growing them from seeds. Another plant that I love but have never been able to successfully grow it, and we even tried it from plugs this year, is stock. I mm-hmm. love stock, but mm-hmm. I, I think our summer is too hot for it. Oh, it interesting. Won't, won't I wonder if well. I wonder if that would be like one of those cool flowers that you could start, you know, uh, a la Lisa Ziegler's method of starting kind of late fall and letting it kind of hunk, hunker we, down until spring. Yeah, we've incorporated um, Lisa's recommendations. There are a lot of our flowers that, that we grow with her her, her methods, we we start the seeds in 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 the fall, and mm. they mm-hmm. overwinter. Some of them um, come up a little bit, and then just sit there <laughs> under mm. snow blankets mm. or or low tarps. Yeah, I mean low low tunnels, and some of them just never even germinate, but will germinate very early in the spring. Wow! So well, we, we we like her techniques, and yeah. we've even tried the stocking. Unfortunately, it didn't do well. Well, you know, that's a future project. You'll tackle it, I'm sure, because it's going to, like, be one of those knots you keep trying to unravel. Uh, yes. Because you're, you're a professional, <laughs> I can tell. And, and we have wonderful help. Um, the state's agricultural college, Cornell, mm-hmm. has wonderful um, offices in, in Riverhead, the county seat. And lots of people who are on their staff who advise the the, the floriculture and the and the vegetable growers here mm-hmm. on Long Island, as well mm-hmm. as the viniculture, the the vineyards. So, oh, right. there's a wonderful professionals who we are constantly texting and emailing mm-hmm. with and sending them photographs of various problems wow. and asking them to please help us solve them. Wow. Well, I am so glad I got to meet you virtually. And I'm, uh, as I told Karen in an email this week, b- because my son has now moved to Brooklyn, I'm fantasizing about frequent, more frequent trips to the New York area. And I know how to take that bus out, of, out to Orient. Um, Good. We so hope you do this, uh, that soon. You'll see me next summer, I promise. And um, will you share some photos uh, of what you are growing and all the people involved with North? Work Flower Farm uh, that we can put into the show notes for t- uh, this particular visit to New York? Sure. Great. Um, we have a lot on our, on our, on our uh, website, as well as we have an Instagram um, account right. uh, at North, northforkflowerfarm.com. And there's a link there to our Instagram account. Good. And it has lots of uh, flowers uh, there from our three years of of 
being on the two-acre parcel. Oh, that's awesome, Charles. Thank you so much. And thanks for visiting today. Please give all the people I love in Orient a hug from me, Karen, for sure, and Charles and Sinan, and of course, those adorable little Havanese puppies that, or they're not puppies anymore. (laughs) (laughs) No, they're not. (laughs) They're they're big now. I sure will. Okay, thank you so much. And uh, I really enjoyed this virtual visit. And uh, I know our listeners will too. Thanks so much. Okay, take care, Charles. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. so much for joining me today as we visited two distinctly beautiful floral destinations in New York. I've added a PDF of my March 2018 Florist Review interview with Sylvia Lukacs of Cape Lily for you to check out. And I've also added a link to a recent article written by Jim Merritt of Newsday, the daily newspaper on Long Island, which features Slow Flowers members North Fork Flower Farm, as well as florist Jacqueline and Mark Rutigliano of the Hometown Flower Company, also Slow Flowers members. It's exciting to see the local press feature Long Island's floral renaissance against the backdrop of the Slow Flowers movement. As our movement gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of the American cut flower industry, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. I value your support and invite you to show your thanks with a donation to support my ongoing advocacy, education, and outreach activities. You can find the donate button in the column to the right at deborahprinzing.com. Our final sponsor spotlight focuses on Johnny's Selected Seeds, an employee-owned company that provides our industry the best flower, herb, and vegetable seeds supplied to farms large and small, and even backyard cutting gardens like mine. Find the full catalog of flower seeds and bulbs at johnnyseeds.com. And check out my past articles featuring the wisdom and voices of flower farmers. You can find the links at deborahprinzing.com in today's show notes. The Slow Flowers podcast has been downloaded more than 507,000 times by listeners like you. Thank you for listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of the Slow Flowers podcast. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more American-grown flowers on the table, one vase at a time. And if you like what you hear, please consider logging onto iTunes and posting a listener review. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. The Slow Flowers podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. Learn more about his work at soundbodymovement.com. Music.